Hello again, everyone. Hope you've been enjoying the Genesis story, the story of Joseph. If you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, that's what we've been tracking through. The book of Genesis, the story of a, an amazing man, Joseph. So please have Genesis 41 open in front of you, and we can, you can follow along as we go through it. And also there's a sermon outline on the yellow-coloured piece of paper. Well, let's pray. God, our Father, thank you for showing us the amazing things we see in your word. Your faithfulness to your people, your ability to fulfill your word and keep your promises. Thank you that we see that again today in the story of Joseph. And we pray that you give us minds ready to hear your word, to be convicted of the truth of it, and to turn to Christ in faith. And we pray in his name. Amen. Can I get a show of hands here today? Who remembers their dreams? You wake up in the, in the morning and you remember your dreams. Okay, that's a few of you. Who doesn't remember their dreams? Ah, that's also a few. I can't imagine what it would be like to not remember my dreams. I remember so many of them. They're very, very strange and pretty wild. You can ask me about them later if you want to. But I'll tell you about probably the most surreal dream that I've ever had. The dream started in central Australia, as all good dreams do. In the middle of the desert at my grandparents' house. For some reason, my grandparents' house was in the middle of the desert, not in Sydney, where it normally is. And I, along with a group of my friends, had fled and evacuated the coast because of a giant tidal wave. So now we were safe in the desert. Or so we thought. In the distance... I see something on the horizon and I start to hear something coming towards me. And when I look, it's a giant pillar, a giant surging water coming, racing towards us. So in an instant, fear and adrenaline kicks in to me and my friends and we start running. We run away as fast as we can, but that's not very fast in a dream because everyone knows you can't run in a dream. You run as hard and hard as you can, but you go nowhere and your muscles feel weak. So eventually we decided to face the inevitable. We stopped, turned around, and braced ourselves for impact. So I'm standing there as a mountain of water is racing towards us, and as it gets closer, a thick cloud of sea spray races past me and surrounds me. Just as I'm waiting for the force of millions of litres of water to hit me, I wake up. It was an incredibly surreal and terrifying dream, as you can imagine. And I've always wondered, what did that dream mean? Why did I have that dream? Was it something to do with my grandparents? Am I afraid of drowning? Is that why I had this dream? Am I subconsciously worried about global warming and rising sea levels? Is that what was going on for me at the time? I don't know, to this day, I have no idea why I had that dream. But today, as we've read, we see Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his surreal, strange, confusing dreams that leave him disturbed and seeking answers that he finds. But first, we need to catch up on the story of our friend Joseph. Over the last few weeks, we've seen the ups and downs of Joseph's life, haven't we? If we had to graph what his experience was like, I think it would look something like this. 
It all started in chapter 37 of Genesis when Joseph was 17 years old. He was the favorite son of his father Jacob. But his brothers hated him for that. And so what did they do? They took him and sold him into slavery. His life goes down to the pits. Then in chapter 39, we saw Joseph in Potiphar's house. He was a slave, but he got promoted to be the most prominent of all the slaves. So things get a little bit better. But soon enough, things take another downward turn. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And when he refuses, he accuses him of raping. And this lands Joseph even further down into the deepest pit of despair in an Egyptian prison with no hope of release. But even in prison, God blessed Joseph so that he was promoted to be the most important of all the prisoners. And then, in chapter 40, which you read last week, Joseph's prospects look up. Two of Pharaoh's officials are thrown in prison, and Joseph interprets their dreams for them. And he says, Cupbearer, please remember me. Please tell Pharaoh about me so I can get out of this awful dungeon. But he doesn't. He forgets Joseph, and he is no better off. Then comes chapter 41, which you read before. And what does that start with? Have a look there. It starts with two years later. For two long years, Joseph waited for the cupbearer to remember him, to tell Pharaoh about him. But he didn't. And in this chapter, we find out Joseph's ex- this is Joseph's experience from the age of 17 to 30. Joseph spends 13 years of his life, 13 years as a slave and a prisoner. Imagine the patience that you would need. Imagine the struggle and frustration, the temptation to cry out, Why, God? Why have you done this? But remember, this is the story of God at work in this broken world. God at work in Joseph's broken life to bring about good. Remember Genesis 50 verse 20. It's there on your outline. At the end of the story, Joseph says to his brothers, You planned evil against me by selling me into slavery. But God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And today we see that picture continue to grow as God works for good. Well, let's see how God works in this chapter. In the first few verses, we see that Pharaoh give, God gives Pharaoh two strange dreams, which is amazing in and of itself. Very rarely does God give dreams to anybody. This is one of those extremely rare times in the Bible that God gives a message to someone individually through a dream. And so what are these strange dreams directly given to Pharaoh? Well, you may have noticed that both of them have the same storyline. Have you ever watched two movies before and then you realise they have basically the exact same storyline? Pocahontas and Avatar, White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen, which came out at the same time. Dante's Peak and Volcano, they're the same story. They spend all that money on a second movie for not much reason. Well, it's the same here. Pharaoh has two dreams with the same plot. In the first one, there's seven healthy cows minding their own business when all of a sudden, seven unhealthy, sickly cows come up and eat them. It's, so, it's gory, isn't it? And the second dream is similar but different. There's seven full heads of grain 
But then seven unhealthy, thin heads of grain come up and eat the healthy ones. I don't really know how grains eat each other. They don't really have mouths, but we'll go with it. And as Phil mentioned last week, in Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion, dreams were important. They were a window into the afterlife or a message from the gods. And so, in verse 8, have a look there. When morning came, Pharaoh was troubled. And you can understand why. So what did he do? Have a look there. He summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Pharaoh gathers together everyone in Egypt who could say anything about the interpretation of dreams, and they haven't got a clue. They do all their research, they do all their rituals, and they come up with nothing. So you can imagine Pharaoh getting more and more worried and disturbed. And if this were a movie, at this point, I think you'd be yelling out, Get Joseph! Joseph is the guy who can help you, Pharaoh. He'll interpret dreams. Or you'd be yelling, Come on, you lousy cupbearer! Do what you were meant to do two years ago. And then to your surprise, you'd realize that he can hear you. The cupbearer finally comes good. In verse 9, he remembers what happened two years ago. What we read last week in chapter 40. He remembers Joseph and he tells Pharaoh about the dreams that he had interpreted and how everything happened exactly as he said it would. So Pharaoh says, bring him here. So in verse 14, they give him a quick makeover and bring him out of the dungeon and he stands before Pharaoh. He goes from the dark, dirty dungeon, the lowest point in the land, to stand before the most powerful man in the land, the king of Egypt. And then this amazing little dialogue happens in verse 15. Have a look. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph has been brought from the depths of the dungeon, the lowest place, to stand before the king of Egypt. And what does he do? He doesn't leave God out of the picture. He doesn't boast in his own abilities. No, instead, he humbly and boldly declares the truth. God is the one who gives interpretations. Before the most powerful man in Egypt, before the man who just had his cupbearer, no, sorry, his chief baker, beheaded two years ago, before the man who would have been considered a god in the people's eyes, Joseph says, no, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, he is able to give interpretations and he alone. Just as we saw last week, Joseph boldly declares God's praises despite the risks. This is another example of Joseph's faithfulness which can teach us and give us courage to declare God's praises to anyone and everyone despite the risks. But how does Joseph, sorry, how does Pharaoh respond to Joseph? Amazingly, Pharaoh doesn't take offense at Joseph. I think it's because he's so worried about this interpretation that he wants it. So he recounts the dreams to Joseph one more time. 
And it's the last time that he ever has to recount them. Because Joseph instantly has the interpretation. Clearly God is working in Joseph's life because without a second's delay, God gives the interpretation to Joseph. So what do they mean? Well, their dreams about the future, the next 14 years. The seven healthy cows and the seven heads of grain, they represent seven years of abundant harvest in Egypt. And the seven unhealthy cows and the heads of grain that were thin, they represent seven years of famine. And this is what's going to happen for the next 14 years. The famine will be so severe that the seven years of abundance will be totally forgotten. God gives this interpretation to Joseph instantly. When all of the wise men and all of the magicians in Egypt, they couldn't say a thing about it. I think this shows us a powerful contrast between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. Here, it is God's wisdom that proves to be true and right. But the wisdom of the world, the wise men, they cannot deliver. They are silent and empty. The Bible talks about this over and over again throughout the Bible. The world's wisdom does not compare with God's wisdom. In fact, God will shame the wisdom of the world and show it to be the foolishness that it really is. He'll do that on the last day. Now, sure, sometimes our world has, our world has some helpful things to say. Science and research and philosophy and education and psychology, they're all good things. They're not bad. But all too often, the wisdom that the world offers, the things that, they get, that the world wants you to believe and to live out, are the opposite to God's wisdom. Our world says, strive to eat super healthy and dress well. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and food and clothing will be given to you. Our world says, exercise is the most important thing for a healthy life. But the Apostle Paul says, training of the body has some benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way. Our world says, save money here and buy a house so that you have security for the rest of your life. But Jesus says, do not store up here treasures where moth and rust can destroy. Our world says, make sure you're sexually compatible before you get married. Try before you buy. God says that sex the way he has designed it is a beautiful act of oneness between a husband and a wife who are committed lifelong. Our world says belief in God is irrational and stupid, but God says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Our world says that to believe in the God who became a man and was crucified is foolishness. But actually it is God's wisdom to save sinners who are in need of his grace and kindness. Be careful listening to the so-called wisdom of the world. Listen to God's wisdom in his word first and foremost and weigh all things against it. But let's get back to the story of Joseph. Joseph goes on from verse 33 to tell Pharaoh not just the interpretation of the dreams, but also what he should do about it. 
He should put someone wise and discerning in charge of Egypt and make sure that there's lots of food stored up so that there's room, sorry, so there's plenty in the years of famine. Perhaps Joseph is simply delivering God's message at this point, or maybe he's putting himself up as the prime candidate. Pick me. I'm the guy you want. Either way, Joseph is promoted. Big time. Pharaoh is so impressed and so pleased with young Joseph that look at what he says in verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone like this? A man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as intelligent and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Just as... Just as Joseph, in previous chapters, he was put in charge of Potiphar's house, and even then, when he was in prison, he was put in charge of the prison. So here, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of his house, which happens to be the whole nation of Egypt. In an instant, Joseph goes from the lowest pits of the dungeon to the man with the most power and authority in the land, basically the prime minister of Egypt. And his 13 years of slavery and suffering are over. You can see there, Pharaoh showers blessings onto Joseph. Scan your eyes from 42 down. Pharaoh gives him fine clothes and jewelry. He gives Joseph his signet ring and the sign of his authority. He gives Joseph his second chariot in his motorcade. He has his servants call out a brek before Joseph, which probably means attention or kneel. He gives Joseph an Egyptian name. He gives Joseph the daughter of an Egyptian priest to be his wife. He gives Joseph all authority in the land of Egypt. So Joseph is raised from the pits of despair to rule and reign and have all authority in the whole land. I don't know about you, when I read this and when I reflect on it, I can't help but be reminded of another man who suffered greatly, but then rose to have all authority. This story is meant to point us forward to Jesus, the one who suffered and who was betrayed and mocked and beaten and flogged and crucified, but then raised to life, defeating death, and then seated at the right hand of God in heaven, the place of all rule and all authority and all power, King of kings and Lord of lords. This story of Joseph, his suffering, his rise to glory, it points us to those well-known verses in Philippians 2. That even though Jesus is God himself, he became a man and humbled himself to the point of death and even death on a cross. And so God highly exalted him. He gave him the name above all names so that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue should confess Jesus is the Lord of the universe. This is what the Joseph story points forward to. The suffering and glory of Jesus, the one who endured the cross, the one who rose and rules over all. And it's worth stopping and thinking for a moment. Because this Joseph story points us to Jesus, 
the one with all authority. It's worth stopping and thinking and asking the question, have you given yourself to the one with all authority? Have you given yourself to the one who died for your sin and your rejection of God? Have you given yourself to the one who rose again so that you could be forgiven and serve him? If you haven't, then ask yourself now, why not? What's stopping me from believing in Jesus? And whatever the answer to that question that you give is, ask yourself, is that answer good enough? Because Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And he calls all people to turn from their sin and turn from their excuses and turn to him in repentance and faith. Now, if you're here and you're genuinely asking questions and you're seeking to know who Jesus is, then great. Keep doing that. Keep reading the Bible with us and asking all of your questions. But if you are making excuses for not giving your life to the Lord Jesus, now is the time to stop and hand it over to him. Because he is the one with all authority who will judge everyone based on how they respond to him. So the Joseph story points to Jesus' suffering and his glory, but it also points to how God works in the lives of all these people. It points to how God works in our lives. Just as Joseph suffered on his path to glory, just as Jesus suffered on his path to glory, so we suffer on our path to glory. Listen to Jesus' promises In John 15, he says, Remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And listen to Jesus in Mark 8. If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The promise of the New Testament is that following Jesus means following him even in his suffering. We might not know where the suffering is coming from or what it might be, but God promises that we will suffer and that he will use it for his plans and for our ultimate good and for his glory. But the other wonderful promise of the New Testament is the glorious hope we have of of spending eternal life with Jesus free from suffering. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8.18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And so we have this little foretaste, this picture in the story of Joseph. God at work bringing him through suffering to glory. And we have this powerful example of Joseph and Jesus. Patient, faithful, reliant on God relying on his promises, and we would do well to imitate them so we can persevere until our day of glory when Jesus returns. Well, let's finish the rest of the story. We've seen Joseph promoted, but now we see Joseph prosper. How does Joseph prosper? Well, from verse 47 onwards, we see that everything that God said through Joseph comes to pass. 
Egypt has seven years of abundance and there's so much grain that they stop measuring it because they can't count it. There's too much. And during these years, God also blesses Joseph with two sons. And good old faithful Joseph decides to name them names that declare God's praises and continue to give God glory. Have a look at verse 51. He calls his first son Manasseh, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And verse 52, he calls his second son Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So just as Joseph boldly gave glory to God before Pharaoh, so now he continues to give glory to God even through the names of his children. But then finally, God prospers Joseph even in this great famine. Have a look at verse 54. And the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt there was food. Because God had worked through Joseph, there was food for all the nations. All of Egypt and even the surrounding nations were coming to Joseph to buy grain. And so Joseph rises to even greater heights. And it's at this point that we start to see the bigger picture of the book of Genesis and the whole Bible. We can see how God is at work in this broken world. How God is at work in Joseph's broken life. Remember again, Genesis chapter 12, that most important chapter of the Bible, where God speaks to Abraham, Joseph's great-great-grandfather. And what does he promise him? Land, descendants, and blessing. And blessing for all the nations. And what can we see happening here? God being faithful to his word. God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He's giving, first of all, Abraham more descendants, as Joseph has more children. He's blessing Joseph, the descendant of Abraham. And he's also blessing Egypt and the nations through Joseph. Have a look at verse 56. Because the famine had spread across the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold grain to who? The Egyptians. And verse 57, he sells grain to every nation because the famine was severe in every land. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He is blessing Joseph and he is using Joseph to bless the world just as he said he would. And as we'll see in coming weeks, he's also paving the way for God's people, Jacob and his sons and their families, to be saved from this famine and starvation but more on that next week. Brothers and sisters, here we see God at work. God fulfilling his promises through thick and thin, through suffering, through pain, through prosperity, even through people's sin and unfaithfulness. God is at work in this broken world to bring about his plans for his glory, for our ultimate eternal good, and for his people. And we can see how this again points forward to Jesus, can't we? Just as Joseph was blessed and God used him to bless other nations, so God blessed the Lord Jesus and through him has blessed all the nations. As the gospel goes out that Jesus died and rose again to save you from sins and give you eternal life, as people believe that wonderful message of truth, 
all the nations, anyone who turns to Christ, they receive the blessing of God that was promised all the way back here in Genesis. And that includes us here today. Those who've received God's blessing because he promised it all those years ago. What an amazing God we serve who works in this broken world. Let's pray to him. God, our Father, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness that though this world and all people reject you, that they turn their eyes away from you and live according to their own ways, that we have sinned and turned against you and still do daily. Father, we thank you that even though that is all true, you have been faithful and poured out your mercy on all humanity. Thank you for the story of Joseph, which shows us again your great faithfulness. And thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who you blessed and poured out blessing on all the nations as people turn to Christ and are forgiven of their sins and receive all eternal life. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.